Our scripture reading this morning is from third or second Peter chapter three, verses fourteen through eighteen. Please follow along as I read. Therefore, beloved, since you are waiting for these, be diligent to be found by him without spot or blemish and at peace. And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to you according to the wisdom given him, as he does in all his letters when he speaks in them of these matters. There are some things in them that are hard to understand, which the ignorant and unstable twist to their own destruction, as they do the other scriptures. You therefore, beloved, knowing this beforehand, take care that you are not carried away with the air of lawless people and lose your own stability, but grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. To him be the glory, both now and to the day of eternity. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Let's go to the Lord in prayer. Father, we come to you this morning and we thank you that uh, you are our vision, you are our guide, you are our Father, and you are one who, Lord, has provided a means for us to say all of those things because of what your Son accomplished. Lord, we come out of the Easter season, a glorious time in which to, again, celebrate not only the empty tomb, but the redemption that was purchased at Calvary, at the cross. And so, Lord, we thank you. Guide us as we go to the text this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, if you would, turn to Second Peter chapter 3. This is the last of our uh, studies of this book. Second Peter 3, verses 14 through 18. The rain is still going on, so it's great. I hear it's done at noon, so we can go until then. It's marvelous. I've already planned. <laughs> no, no, we'll end on a timely fashion. You know, I, one of the things I do when I pick up a new book is I, I love to read the endorsements on the back, the summary. I look at the table of contents. I'll read a section of the intro, and I also read the last paragraph, which I know is annoying to a lot of people. But I like to read the end. The closing words are significant. Here's some closing words. See if you can identify the, 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 the piece of literature. After all, tomorrow is another day. Gone with the wind, right? It is not often that someone comes along who's a true friend and a good writer. Charlotte was both of those. Charlotte's Web, right? What a, Max stepped into his private boat and waved goodbye and sailed back over a year and in and out of weeks and through a day and into the night of his very own room where he found his supper waiting for him. It was still hot where the wild things are, right? And, and here is too, Toto and oh, Aunt M, I'm so glad to be home again, Wizard of Oz. These closing words are, are, are significant and it's true in the letters that we find in the New Testament. 
Peter has been moving through and to discussing various things. In fact, if we, we look at a diagram here of, of the book that we started with at the very beginning of our journey, we saw the opening, which is typical of ancient literature. And then there's the body, and we saw the, the key issues that he addressed, Peter did, the call to grow spiritually, the criteria of Peter's teaching, the caution of the false teachers, the coming of Jesus, the promise there. And now we get to those closing words. And we're going to find four commands. I've called them the ABCs of spirituality. I've tried to use the acronym. We'll see if it works as we go through this and as we look through uh, this diagram that we've been examining. But in these concluding com commands, Peter is going to summarize all that he's laid out in these first three chapters things that have echoed in 1 Peter, but more so in this book, that is 2 Peter. So if you're following along, you'll notice the first letter on the acronym is ABCs, is A, which is to assess one's spiritual standing. Notice what he says in verse 14. Therefore, dear friends, this is a phrase he's used earlier in chapter 3 a couple times. Uh, he's going to use it again here in the concluding part. But he says, dear friends, since you are waiting for these things, strive to be found at peace without spot or blemish when you come into his presence. As we looked at a couple weeks ago, uh, before Good Friday, the first part of chapter 3 looks to this promise of Christ coming. And notice verse 13, you know, we look to this new heavens and a new earth where the righteous will dwell. And, and you see this expectation. He says, we're waiting for this in verse 13. And he springs off of that here in verse 14 and says, we are waiting. You are waiting. The you is emphatic here to say, this is what we're looking for. In other words, we, and you think about it, Christianity is an apocalyptic religion. We're looking to the end. Right? Yay. <laughs> We're looking for the righteous to reign supreme, for wickedness to be dealt with. And Peter's saying here, you, we cannot be idle. We cannot be indifferent. You know, we have to be striving, and he says here, to be found at peace. Now, what's he talking about here? You know, sitting in a yoga position, saying, um... Uh, this kind of peace, is that what he's referring to? No. In fact, the idea of being found is used frequently in the New Testament, I, I would argue, of, of sitting before a judge. And here the context is clear. Our judge is Christ. And he says, you're looking to this, and, and notice the context. The peace has to be then referring to not an inner tranquility, but rather peace that comes from a relationship with the Lord. One commentator writes, this peace is the objective condition of being reconciled with God and being found acceptable before him. It's what Paul said in told, what he told the churches in Galatia, that in due season we will reap if we faint not. In light of all that Peter's looked at, he says, we're striving, we need to be striving to be found in peace. The context there without spot, spot or blemish, I would argue only accentuates this or highlights this interpretation. Remember his description of the false teachers earlier in chapter two? He said they had spots. They were blemished. And unfortunately, a believer, or should I say fortunately, the believer is called to imitate Christ. And as Peter highlighted in his first epistle, that 
one, that is Christ, is a lamb without defect or blemish. And that's what we're called to do. We're to be striving, we're to be paying attention, and we're to thus to assess our spiritual standing. This spring, some of you have done what I've done, that's you go back to the flower beds, and you realize it's been months without attention (laughs) through the winter, and the dandelions are popping up. I don't know who planted a dandelion in my tulip bed, but there it is, right? And all of these things that you, you thought, I, I thought I prepped well before winter hit, but no, it, it demands ongoing attention. And the idea here is the same. Far more significant in this is this idea that we need to be prepared, that it's coming. Why? Because this new heavens and a new earth is only where the righteous dwell. <laughs> and so Peter is saying, hey, take an assessment these concluding words, these parting words that I have. Remember, Peter is facing death. Death is imminent for him. We saw that earlier in this book. These are his parting words the apostle Peter has to the church. So assess one's spiritual standing. Second, seen in verses 15 and 16, is B of the ABCs, and that is to be aware of God's plan. Notice it says, regard the patience of our Lord as salvation. Now, he's already highlighted this. Notice in verse 9, go back to chapter 3, verse 9. He says, the Lord is not slow concerning his promise, as some regard slowness. Remember, that's what the false teachers were arguing. Eschatology? Eh. This end time stuff? Eh. Lord's delayed. You, You can't take all of this literal Live like you want. And Peter's saying, no, 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 no. And and he reminds them of this in verse 15. Don't forget this. Don't forget the patience of the Lord is for salvation. While God is waiting, he is both giving time for the unbeliever. If you don't know Christ as your Savior this morning, he's giving you time to repent. And for the believer to be working out his or her salvation, and that is in the terms of sanctification, You've been justified. You've been declared right. But you are to be set apart as you grow in your walk with the Lord. It's interesting in the midst of this letter that, to me, that he quotes Paul. Don't you find that intriguing? He says here, and oh, and and just as our dear brother Paul wrote to you. There's several implications here that are very significant, I would argue, for our study as well as even beyond it. But I think why is Paul referred here is we know that Paul also addressed those who sought liberty in the Christian faith. Those who claimed, ah, I've been saved by grace. I've been forgiven. Now I can live as I want. That's the whole book of Galatians and addressing all of that, that that entails. And those who want to say, no, you have to do X, Y, Z. And so Paul walks that tightrope between liberty and obedience, etc. And so I it resonates with things they already know and it substantiates also Peter's message because he says, Paul also told you this. Now, there are several implications. If you're taking notes, you'll want to write these down because they're so significant here in the text. First of all, notice how Peter refers to Paul. Our dear brother. Now that's saying something because there are no grudges. (laughs) 
<laughs> Remember, it was Paul who said he publicly called out Peter in the early church. So you would think there might be a little tension between the two Ps. Nope. No, we see this. We're working together. There's humility on the part of Peter. There's humility on the part of Paul. Furthermore, we see that Paul also wrote to this audience. Notice what he says. Paul wrote to you. Now the you, remember, our audience for Peter is where? Modern Turkey. That includes Asia Minor. That includes Galatia. We know that Paul wrote a letter to the churches in Galatia. We call it Galatians. He wrote a church to Ephesus, which is Ephesians. He wrote to Philemon. He wrote to Colossians. He wrote to Colossae, the, the letter. And, and so all of this region, Paul has penned letters as well. And so we know, again, that yes, these people have been privy to other Christian leader writings. But notice what he says about Paul. According to the wisdom... And it's a divine passive given to him. It's not innate with Paul. Oh, he's very learned. And I would argue that had he not become a believer, he probably would have been a member of the Sanhedrin, that Jewish ruling body in the first century there. I mean, Paul said, I'm a, I was among, among my peers. I was the best. He studied at the best schools. He studied with the best teachers. But no, no, the wisdom that, that we're talking here is God-given. In fact, in Galatians, Paul says, the grace that has been given to me, Galatians 2. And it says, in other words, what Paul laid out to you, what I've laid out to you is the implication as well. This isn't from us, Peter's saying, Paul. This is from the Lord that you've been gifted these things. These aren't our opinions, According to the wisdom given to him, speaking of these things. What are these things? Well, the immediate context is the end times. Christ's second coming is judgment that will be upon the people. You want a book that prepares you for life, that assists in navigating the waters and guides in understanding this world, this is it. Why? Because ultimately it comes from the Lord. That's why Paul can say in 2 Timothy 3, all scripture is God-breathed. It's God himself. Now there's another implication here. Notice what it says as well. Speaking to these things in all his letters. What does that tell you? There's a collection of Paul's letters that are being assembled. <laughs> there, there's letters that are recognized. This is apostolic authority. That it also tells us they're being circulated. You say, well, Ahavidus, where do you get that in the text? Well, we know in Colossians, Paul says to them in chapter 4, he says, listen, when you're done reading this letter, I want you to send it to the church at Laodicea, which is just across the Lycus Valley. When you, when you get done with the letter, get that letter as well from them. I want you to swap the epistles so you, you can all see that I, I'm writing about. Or 2 Corinthians 10 we're told his letters, Paul's letters, are weighty and strong and bold presence. And so what do we see going on here? Early in the church, we see a gathering of these letters. The canon is being formed, recognized by the church. The church never determined canon. They only recognize, ah, these are the books we're going to live by. These are the books that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And so we see this early on. This is very significant. Isn't it? Why is Colossians included? Because the early church recognized this is the Holy Spirit's writing through the Apostle Paul. And so 
these letters are being gathered. Remember, there's no Xerox machine. <laughs> and so if you hear a group over here has a letter from Paul, what do you want? You want a copy so that you can read it to your congregation. And you might say, well, and we got a letter from Paul. We want to exchange it to you. So this is what's happening here, this, this collection. Where it gets a little more interesting is, is Peter's next words. He said, but some things that Paul writes are hard to understand. And I have seminary students, former seminary students would say, amen. Um, some things are, the idea here is capable of being misinterpreted or ambiguous. Now, careful here, because it says the ignorant and unstable, which is obviously a reference to false teachers. But I, I would also argue to there's some within the church, he says, they twist it to their own destruction. In other words, their own sinful appetite is dictating how they're looking at the scriptures, how they are what we call hermeneutics, their study of the text. They're twisting it so that it can fit and justify their own actions. Even Paul, even Paul himself recognized that some of his Scriptures, his writings were being misinterpreted and perverted. Second Thessalonians two, Second Timothy ten, two. Excuse me. He gives present. He gives examples, and certainly in the day and day in which we live, <laughs> like we could give numerous examples of where those who are so supposedly in the church are taking the scriptures and and making it fit their own paradigm. I don't normally do this, but I'm going to give you an example. This week I was reading a recent article by the president of Union Seminary, which is in New York, Dr. Serena Jones. She writes, as a Christian, theologian, and a minister, and the president of a seminary, so she's established her credentials, right? With many transgender students, I am horrified by the continued use of Christianity and the Bible to viciously attack the transgender community. The Bible never said that being transgender is wrong. She missed Deuteronomy 22 and 1 Corinthians 6, but we'll go on. This extremist wrong-headed belief is simply based on shaky ex uh, extrapolations of the text. In contrast, nearly every page of the Bible tells us that we must love and care for one another, not degrade and harm each other. Ultimately, when we look to the Bible for guidance, we have to look for its overarching lessons, love others. Now, I appreciate her desire to love one another. And I appreciate that she wants to take us to the text. But I do have a few questions. And, and I would argue she's falling victim of the very thing Paul saying in Peter, be very careful of. Because Dr. Jones, to allow a person to continue in the path of destruction and not warn them, is that truly love? <laughs> if we love someone, don't we want to help them? Ephesians 4 did not Jesus confront sin and warn of the dangers that it brings? Did not God create male and female and say it was good? If we truly are to love one another and care deeply, then we need to take a stand on what is right and good. Even a recent Swedish study shows that those who transitioned are 19 times more likely to attempt or commit suicide. 19 times more. So I say to Dr. Jones, careful, you're twisting this text. You're not looking at the whole, 
canon and what it has to say for us. Yes, in fact, let me just give you some guidelines. I was thinking through this. What are some parameters for when we look at these 66 books? Because as Peter said, some of this is hard to understand. So how do we do this? First, it calls for careful and studious, not flippant approach to the text. It's looking at the history. It's looking at the culture. It's looking at the grammar. It's looking at the literary style or what we call the genre. You, you don't read a, a sports page like you, you read a love letter. You don't read a, an epistle like you do a narrative piece. There's, there, there's guidelines. There's things set forth. I used to tell my students, if, if you come up with a new and novel interpretation, you better do your homework. <laughs> that should scare you. The church is 2,000 years old. There's been a lot of interpretation, but there's some guide rails, so be careful. So it talks, we need to be good Bereans, students of the word. Secondly, we need to read it as a whole. Yes, Christ said to love one another, but Christ also talked about sin. He also talked about how God has created male and female and the beauty of that. Careful not to take something out of context is the danger here. Certainly we need to have humility and a willingness to submit. We, we can't come to the text with a personal agenda. We do not sit above the text, we sit under the text. And finally, it calls for prayer. Why is all that significant? Look what Peter says about those who are twisting Paul's writings. Peter says, these unprincipled men, it says they've unstable and twist in their own, verse 16, to their own, here it is, destruction. In other words, it, it, they can't claim they misinterpreted Peter, or Paul's writings. No. They, they can't declare that they were ignorant of certain things. They will be held culpable. And destruction has already been used several times in Second Peter to say, you will be found guilty. Judgment is coming. And their actions are wicked and deserving of God's judgment. They have intentionally twisted the text for their own end. One other thing I want to comment on here is we, two, well, two more implications. Notice it says, they also do this to the rest of the scriptures. Did you hear what Paul just, or Peter just did with Paul's writings? The word scripture occurs over 50 times in the New Testament. It always refers to the Old Testament. So what is Peter doing with Paul's writings? He's putting on an elevation with the Old Testament. This is very significant. He said, it's just as inspired, just as authoritative Paul's writings, such as the letter to the church at Ephesus, as is Moses' writings. This is very significant. 1 Thessalonians 2, Paul writes, We also constantly give thanks to God for this, that when you received the word of God you heard from us, you accepted it not as human word, but as it really was God's word, which is also at work in you as believers. Significant. And as Peter is facing death and he's warning these dear friends, these beloved folks that he's spent and poured time into, he said, assess where you are, be aware of God's plan, and in so doing, man, guard the word. Listen to the scriptures. Why? Because he says here, ultimately, they were led astray and you don't want to fall into it. In other words, the final implication, if we look at all of these things we've just seen, the final is Paul's writings hold people responsible, is what Peter is saying about Paul's writings. 
all of scripture, I would argue, <laughs> if it's truly authoritative, that is, if it's inspired by God, it's wisdom from him, then, and it has thus the ability to hold us eternally responsible. William Wilberforce, you know the name, he helped abolish slavery in Great Britain in the late, well, early 1800s, early 1700s when he was born. At approximately 26 years of age, he read a book, The Rise and Progress of Religion in Your Soul by Doddridge, a nonconformist minister in the early in the 1700s in Great Britain. And on, upon reading that book, William Wilberforce bent his knee and said, I, I will follow after Christ. Later, Wilberforce writes a book, A Practical View of Christian Religion, and he writes, There are four things we ought to do with the Word of God. Admit it as the Word of God, commit it to our hearts and minds, submit to it, and transmit it to the world. And that is exactly what he did. He knew that the greatest thing in life was his own relationship with the Lord. And if he wanted a revival in his land, if he wanted to see the abolish of slavery, and if we want national recovery, I would argue, it, it, it must begin with a personal desire to know God and to live a life that pleases him. And that's only found through this and understanding it. And so we see these points as Peter highlights with Paul's writings. Uh, one, we see the apostolic authority that's there, but they're inspired. That, that was seen by the early church in the collection. And yes, some things are hard to interpret. But Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. <laughs> we can debate eschatology. We can debate aspects of soteriology. But Jesus Christ came, he died, and he rose again. And whoever calls upon the name of the Lord will be saved. There's the basic tenets of the faith that we understand. And, and why? Because this is authoritative. It's on par with the Old Testament. And we will be held accountable. So that's, that was a side note. It's free. But I, I, I love that, that Peter, in closing out his letter, says, This is nothing new to you, O church. Paul wrote to you as well. And I want you to be reminded of these things. Well, he, he gives us a, a third command. Here's the letter C, and that's a, uh, we need to be conscious of our falling. Notice in verse 17. Therefore, dear friends, he says, notice what he writes, since you have been forewarned, and that's emphatic, since you, my friends, have been forewarned, as we have seen earlier in chapter 3, be on, and also from Paul's writings, be on your guard that you do not get led astray by the air of these unprincipled men and fall from your firm grasp of the truth. He says, don't get led away. And the term here is of apostasy. It's abandoning the faith. He says, don't go down that road to turn aside away from the truth. Ultimately, I would argue, reveals that an individual was never part of the people of God. It says, don't let it carry away. It's interesting, that was used of Barnabas when the Judaizers, remember that was a group that came and they're addressed in, in the book of Galatians. They were a group of Jews who said, no, yes, this is the gospel, that is Jesus died, rose, and was, uh, rose from the dead, but you also must practice circumcision, you must do all the Jewish things as well in order to be considered a believer. 
And Peter also started to buy into that. And that's when Paul called him out. And I can't help but wonder if Peter's not reflecting on that as he writes this. He says, don't get carried away. Guard your heart. But also as Moo, Douglas Moo writes in his commentary, Peter is concerned that believers not view their security in Christ to condone a careless attitude towards the struggle with sin. Confidence in our status with Christ should never lead to a presumption on God's grace that leads us to toy with the danger of false teachers or negate serious striving after holiness. He says, don't let these unprincipled men, which by the way is the same description used of those of Sodom and Gomorrah back in chapter two, verse seven. He says, don't do that. You lose your grasp on truth and you'll grab onto anything that best suits you. Watch, and I can assure you, Satan will be most happy to accommodate. Neglect a heart and it will soon be overrun with those dandelions. <laughs> Fail to participate in the gathering of believers and, and, and being in the word, etc., is dangerous ground. A.W. Tozer wrote this nearly 50 years ago. The church that is not jealously protected by mighty intercession, prayer, and sacrificial labor will before long become the abode of every evil bird and the hiding place for unsuspected corruption. Peter knew that. And he says, oh, church, be cautious. He's friends with Charles Ryrie theologian and two weeks before he passed we were talking over the phone and I said what's a word of advice that you'd give as you are ushered into the presence of the Lord he says I'm very concerned for the church <laughs> very concerned this was about 12 years ago 10 years ago and that's what Peter is saying is he, he's passing on and he's giving that baton to the church he says, oh guard your hearts be careful and all that's going to occur. Don't let these unprincipled people pry your fingers away from the truth. The last thing we see in commands is there in the first part of verse 18. But grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord. Notice Peter doesn't appeal to grit. He doesn't appeal to inner strength or courage. He commands us to grow. And I beg several questions. First, what does Peter mean by growing in grace and the knowledge of our Lord and Savior? It sounds very nice. It would be wonderful in a greeting card. But what does that mean? Right? To increase in grace here, to grow in grace, we're, we're, we're talking about the grace that comes from our salvation. It, it says the advances and the, the benefits that come from being called a child of the Lord. Grace is never seen as a static reality. God has extended his grace to us in every situation, in every challenge of life. That's why Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, but by the grace of God, I am what I am. And so Peter says we need to grow in that grace. We also need to grow in knowledge. And we've looked at knowledge time and time again in this letter. It is epistle, often referred to as epistle of knowledge. He's not talking about the cognitive per se. Ultimately, to know the cognitive is, is the desire to know God. When, when you 
hit the storms of life and when the, the false teachers come in or, or those are saying, hey, you know, we need to love one another and you're scratching your head going, wait a minute, that sounds really good. You, you need to be careful. And that's why he says, grow in this grace, grow in this knowledge. You know, if you're out on a boat and you're getting seasick, what do they tell you? Look at the land. <laughs> look straight ahead. Look at the land. Don't look at the water. You know, you're toast, right? Oh, that's the idea. Look to the grace. Look to the knowledge. Use that as your, your focal point. This implies, by the way, the growth. If there's to be growth, it means that there's already life. I've got a rose bush. I can guarantee you it's dead. <laughs> it's not almost dead. It's dead. And I, I've been looking for any growth I could find. There's no growth. This assumes that 2 Corinthians 5, therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he's a new creation. The old has passed away. The new has come. And so it, growth presupposes life. It presupposes a beginning. If you don't know Christ as your Savior, there is no transformation yet. You can do all you want to do until you've placed your faith in Christ. There's no growing. And we see here growth is essential. It's vital. That's why Peter's taking time to tell us as a church, grow in grace and the knowledge are not options for the believer. No. I mean, it would be nice to sit out on the porch on a rocking chair and just wait till the Lord returns. That's not what we're called to do. It's not an option. We have to be careful here. We're not talking about works for salvation purposes. And I hear people say that, well, I'm really struggling with that, whether I'm justified, declared right. I place my faith, but mm, I've not always lived for him. I'll tell you what, if you, if you do a self-examination, you will always come up short. <laughs> Hate to tell you. Where do we find our worth? Where do we find our, our understanding? It's solely by the grace of God, through the knowledge of what he has accomplished for us. If we examine, we have to begin with the cross. We must continue to look to the cross, and we must end with the cross. Another implication here is growth must occur both in grace and knowledge. Knowledge without grace, that's a very dangerous and horrific weapon. It's called legalism. Grace without knowledge, well, that's spiritual. Ugh. That's like nailing down jello, right? The two have to go hand in hand. And, and Peter knew that. He says, you, you, we as a church have to grow in this. So that's what it means. But how do we do it? The, re the recipe for spiritual growth, growth requires, I think, several important ingredients. It's time in the word, fellowship with the saints, prayer, active Christian service, and discipline, rest, and avoidance of what is harmful to life and growth. It's never sudden. The spiritual life is a process. And again, it's not just based on knowledge. It, it's, it's based on living out what he has accomplished in our life. I love that, that he says it's the grace and knowledge, and catch this, of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. He uses that phrase four times in this letter. But how do we determine whether we're growing? Have you wondered that? Yes, I understand all that confidence. I've, I've done studies on spiritual growth. But how do I know with my own life? What's the litmus test that I look at to see, or the barometer, whether I'm really growing? Well, I, it's not activities or ministries or how busy you are serving. Uh, ask Martha in Luke chapter 10. Eeks. 
it's easy though, I think, isn't it, in our culture to determine, well, I'm, I'm really doing well spiritually because, man, I had devotions five days this week. I prayed for 20 minutes. I even fasted for lunch. Mind you, I didn't like the restaurant. But, you know, you know so I've done X, Y, Z, so I really must be doing well in the spiritual realm. It's not a, no, I, 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 let me give you three questions to ask. And I think they're determining factors of how, how we're doing spiritually. Number one, what is your understanding of your own sin? As Paul progressed in his writings, if you lay them out chronologically, it's very interesting because in 1 Corinthians 15, he talks about that he's the least of the apostles, which tells us he's still a big dog, right, in the fight. But I'm just the least of the apostles. But when he gets to 1 Timothy, he says, I am the worst of sinners. Wow. How did you get to that, Paul? The worst of sinners? Because as he continued growing in his walk with the Lord, continuing to understand his theology, it, all of a sudden it shows who he really is. And so how are you doing? Do you have a healthy view of self? It's funny, I was looking at people who filled out applications and they don't always have a very healthy view of themselves, do they? One person wrote, and the current salary was posted as 36,000. They said salary desired 230,000. <laughs> it's probably not a good assessment of oneself. One wrote, I'm bilingual in three languages. <laughs> Another person said, last position held, uh, I was a target for middle management hostility. <laughs> These are healthy views of oneself. And, 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 and so what is your view of sin in your life? When you blow it, does it ruin your day? Does the spirit convict? Or have you become callous? And so it's so easy to, to turn on the computer or, or fudge a little bit on the paperwork for the work or look over at your fellow students' papers during the exam. How, is, how do you view sin? Your own depravity. Here's another question. What is your attitude towards the world? Do you grieve over what's transpiring? Are you concerned about the salvation of those that are around you? Or are they more of a nuisance? And the third question, I think, helping to see whether you're growing spiritually is, are you growing in a deeper desire to love God? Is your life encaptured, is our lives encaptured with the beauty of Christ and a longing to glorify him? There's a quote down at the bottom of your notes there by Sinclair Ferguson. He writes, a Christian's real development in spiritual life will always be revealed by how an individual thinks about God. Grow in grace and knowledge. There it is. How much one thinks about him and how highly one thinks about him. Oh, that's great. And so the three questions, if you want to test, how am I doing spiritually? What's your view of sin? How do you view the world, and, and are you growing in your love for the Lord? Those are the three tests. It's not the things you do. That flows out of those, answering those three questions. And so we see a little bit of what Peter means by growing in grace and in knowledge. We, we've seen how does one grow and how does one determine why is it important? That's the last question. Well, it's the only way to stand firm. 
and meet the contradictions of this life and this world. And as we navigate the, the waters, it, it's, it's not just for us personally, but it's for us corporately as a body of believers. And as William Wilberforce has shown, it also spills into our culture. The church is meant to hold back, restrain evil as the spirit works through in a culture and in a society. Well, I love, Peter gets down with these ABCs and he, he, then he breaks out in song, doesn't he? To him be honor and glory. I love it. There's something slightly unique though with this closing. Don't miss this. First of all, he does not give praise to the Father. He gives praise to the Son, which is very unusual with the New Testament writings. It goes to Christ. For Peter, the Lord, that is Jesus Christ, is the end all. He is the center of everything. He's the one we long to see. And so he says, to him be the glory. The glory that is due. I love the, the third verse of the old hymn, to God be the glory. Great things he has taught us, great things he has done, great our rejoicing through Jesus' the Son, but purer and higher and greater will be our wonder, our transport when Jesus we see. Oh, come to the Father through Jesus the Son and give him the glory, great things he has done. And to change a little bit of Fanny Crosby's words, great things he has done, is doing, and will do. So he says to him, that is Christ, be honor. And what is also unique with this doxology or this closing is that you would expect him to say both now and forever and ever. But he doesn't. And he says, on that eternal day. How significant. Because as Peter has already shown, the false teachers were denying that there was a day coming when God will judge. And as Peter's highlighted and reminded his readers also that Paul talked about this, there's a day coming when God will judge. He will vindicate. He will bring a new heavens and a new earth. And until then, and even then, we give glory to the Lord. And so we come to the closing of a beautiful letter, don't we? Peter gives us the ABCs of spirituality. Assess one's spiritual standing. Be aware of God's plan. Conscious of falling. And succeed in growing in grace and knowledge. To paraphrase the closing of another book, that is Mr. Baum's The Wizard of Oz. And here is Jesus, not Toto. And I'm so glad we're home. Father, what a day. What a day it will be when we will give glory to you as we fall at the throne of our Savior, your Son, Jesus. And as Peter concludes this writing, these parting words to people he's grown deeply in love with, people he cares deeply for and understands that death is imminent for him, he calls for them to remember, to assess, and to cling fast to the truth as they grow in grace and knowledge. Lord, as a church, may we heed these commands that Peter gave and Paul echoed. In Jesus' name.